You can uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5 to start with, and we're going to go to John chapter 14. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this glorious insight that Jesus gave us in John chapter 14. We have understanding of what you call great. I ask you to bless us, Lord, as we hear and bless us, touch our hearts and our understanding by your spirit as we hear this word. Mark us in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to talk on a subject. I want to call it the life that God calls great. And it's uh, through John chapter 14. And it's a great blessing that the human race has clarity on what God calls great. We have no question. There's no guessing. Because we're all going to stand before the Lord at the end. And to have this knowledge is, is just indescribably glorious. Because we don't want to spend our life guessing and get there and be shocked. Now, I have here that this is session 14 because I've, myself and Stuart, we've done two semesters of teaching on Friday nights on John 13 and 14. And we're going to continue over the next year on John 13 to 17. And so I'm just giving you the, the final session of John chapter 14 because I just feel so stirred that we all uh, need to be challenged by what the Lord is saying. Roman number one here. And I have a two-page handout it's, it's, that I've given you this morning, but I have a four-page one on the Internet. And so some of you have the Internet copy, and so the not exactly the exact uh, uh, designations of it, but I'll make it clear as we're going through it. Roman number one, John 13 to 17, these five chapters is the greatest teaching given by the greatest teacher in human history. I want to say that again. There is nothing, even in Jesus' teaching, that equals these five chapters in terms of insight about God's heart and his ways. And it's on the last evening, Thursday night, at the Last Supper, before he dies on Friday, he unpacks these five chapters. It's called the Upper Room uh, Discourse. And these chapters were used by the Lord to prepare the disciples to face the conflicts and troubles they would face immediately after that evening. Matter of fact, the troubles would begin that night. And so that had a very significant application. But I believe the great, the ultimate application of these five chapters is in the generation the Lord returns. When there will be great pressures and, and temptations and troubles and on the earth, but it's in this hour the Lord will equip, I believe, even a billion believers to walk with an overcoming heart. And these five chapters are critically important, I believe, to equip the end-time church to walk with a vibrant spirit and to walk in that over that heart of the bride, the overcoming heart of the bride. Well, I'm, I'm going to begin these five chapters by going back about two years earlier and uh, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount about two years before his final message here in John 13 to 17. And we have it in Matthew chapter 5. He introduces this idea, and the next two years he uh, elaborates on it, but here in chapter 13 to 17 he gives even more detail than any other time. But it began about two years ago in the Sermon on the Mount. He makes this really radical a little bit disturbing statement, but exciting as well. Nobody's ever said anything like this. He's talking about people, believers, who are saved by the grace of God, 
standing before the Lord on the last day in, in, in the age to come is what he's talking about here. He says, I want to tell you, verse 19, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, whoever breaks, I'm going to say dismisses, even the least of what I'm telling you here, these commandments, the eight Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, and he in teaches or encourages or emboldens other people to dismiss these. They're in the kingdom of heaven, but they will be called least. But whoever, that's my favorite word, anybody that embraces these teachings and encourages, even one-on-one, -on -one, strengthens, encourages, urges others to obey them, they should, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's a remarkable statement because both groups are in the kingdom of heaven. Both groups are in the resurrection. Now what Jesus is talking about here is that God the Father will call their life choices great. He's gonna say the way you chose, the way you spent your time and your money and the choices you made, I'm declaring before you I call them great doesn't mean their ministry impact was real big. It doesn't mean they accomplished a lot of things in outward achievements, which is good to do, but he goes, no, that's not it. It's the way they've engaged their heart. It's based on the size of their heart responses. But this is for anyone. And if you will teach someone, maybe one-on-one, -on -one, maybe you teach a couple children in your neighborhood, Maybe nobody listens to you, but you, whoever is in front of you, you say, hey, I want to try to urge others. That person can stand before the Lord and the Lord call his life choices great. If, if they've done this on those years leading up to them standing before the Lord. And it's never too late to start this journey. Someone might be 80 years old and say, hey, hey, go now. Start now. Get a history for however long you have. Go for it. Now, Paul made this same idea, he said it a little differently, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 41, I have here on the, on, the, on the notes here, the teaching notes. Now this is a new idea to some people, but it's a really clear idea in the scripture. For one star differs from another star in glory. As that is true, there's billions of stars, they all differ in glory. So also everyone in the resurrection will differ in glory. All believers, the Bible's clear, has equal significance and value before the Father. Every believer, even the least in the kingdom, their significance and value is equal to anybody else. But everybody, even in the age to come and the resurrection, every person will have a different spiritual capacity, even like angels. There's angels with far greater spiritual capacity than other angels. They all differ in rewards. Paul said that some believers, though they'll be saved as though by fire, they'll suffer loss of all the rewards they could have had. Other believers will be greatly rewarded because of their life choices. We'll all differ in responsibility. We'll all differ in our function in the age to come. And so Jesus is referencing this. He goes, in the age to come, on one end, those said, God says their life choices were great. On, on the other end, though loved by God, God will say your life choices were least. And, and the, he's not angry at them, but there's a declaration. And Jesus says, don't be shocked by that. And I've prayed a prayer over the years. Lord, shock me now. Don't shock me then. Tip me off now. I want to know 
what you call great. And he doesn't say, make sure you got a big ministry. Make sure you accomplish a lot. He says, make sure you respond at the heart level as consistently as you can lay hold of in the grace of God. Paragraph B. I just want to, again, highlight the value of John 13 to 17. It is the greatest teaching. I believe the most significant teaching of the greatest teacher in human history. And again, he speaks this on the Thursday. He dies on Friday. But the point I want to make here, and that's why we're on Friday nights, we've had two semesters, and we're going to do, by, uh, you know, Lord willing, another three or four semesters. Another couple years we're staying on John 13 to 17. Myself and Stuart, we've done 25 messages. We plan to do over 100, just verse by verse, line by line through these five chapters. And I'm really doing it, kind of sanctified selfishness. I want to drive, bring my heart through these passages. I want to be marked by digging them, searching them out. But here's, what here's a, a something that I have found to be true. I didn't know this some time ago. John 14, this might be new to you, is the most detailed passage on the first commandment in the Bible. The dynamics and the truths involved in walking out wholehearted love for God John 14 is clearly the most detailed passage. Now, at a quick read, you might not see that. If you read it quick, you think, really? But uh, we've spent now, this is our 14th session on this. And next semester, we're going to do fifth, uh, John 15. Then the next semester, John 16. Next semester, John 17. Like 15 sessions each time. Lord willing. And I think he's willing. I really do. <laughs> and we're being really touched in the process. And you don't need to be a part of the Friday night meetings, but all of them are on, on the internet and all the transcriptions. And, but I want to urge you, just sometime in the days ahead, say, I want to go somewhere in these, 13, these uh, five chapters. They're very, very expensive, I mean, very, very significant for the end time church. Okay, paragraph C. It was two days earlier on Tuesday, because right now he's on Thursday night in the upper room. He made, in my opinion, one of the most dramatic statements he ever made, ever made in human history, in terms of insight. And it might not seem that way, but it really is one of the most significant, important declarations in history. Two days earlier on Tuesday. So on Thursday, he's actually developing and elaborating on that statement. He said this. He said something well known. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. We you find that a number of times in Scripture. But here's the new information. It's never been said before by anybody. It's in verse 38 of Matthew 22. He goes, I want you to know this common, well-known commandment to love God, it is what God calls first and great. You have to know this is the Holy Spirit's first emphasis for your life. This is the first in priority of the Holy Spirit's word to the church in this hour of history, every hour of history. This is the number one thing God cares about in your family, in your market, your kingdom marketplace assignment, is that the loving God would be done and, in, and others would be inspired in the fruit of our labors. That's number one. It's first. It is to be our first prayer focus. Now, many believers, they've never thought about that. And I'm not saying that like, bah humbug, you're, you know, you're really bad, you've never thought about that. But this is to be our first prayer focus in our life. Not the only one, but the one we're most engaged with before the Lord. Now, if that's a new idea, some of you might go like, oh, okay, hey, good, that first. 
Okay, I get it. And the Lord and Jesus says, let me tell you more. It's what God calls great. There's no mistake about it. You do this, you reach for this. Now, none of us are going to enter into perfection, but reaching in, I mean, like we'll have in the resurrection, but reaching for this in the spirit of this is what he's calling for. And we can do that even in our weak humanity by the grace of God. And the Lord says, Jesus is telling us, the Father will call this great. Again, there's no mistake. I know what greatness is. I want to I stand before him and say my life choices were great. And again, if you're later on in the journey with the Lord and you've never done that, start today. Start today. Paragraph D. Moses prophesied, this was a very well-known prophecy in Deuteronomy 30. This was at the very end, before, right before Moses dies. He gives, he gives this prophecy in Deuteronomy 30. He's talking about the people of God at the end of the age. He's talking about Israel, but he's also talking, we know now that the, the body of Christ, at the end of the age, Moses prophesied this glorious reality. God's people will be anointed to walk in the first commandment. I mean, all through history it's been available, but there's going to be a, a global, I mean, a massive release of the grace of God to enable people to walk in this. And here Jesus is on Tuesday declaring this over Israel. And it's important to know this is his last public declaration over the people of God. He's in Jerusalem. Matthew 22 is his last message. Somebody would say, what would Jesus say if he had one more, one more message? I say, I know for sure it's Matthew 22. And he ends it with this declaration. And when he says, you shall love the Lord your God, he's speaking over Israel. And even in that, through the, all the people of God through history, he's not only saying you ought to love the Lord your God. He is saying that. He's saying, I say by the Holy Spirit, you shall love the Lord your God. I will return for an equally yoked bride. I am coming for a people who love me with all of their heart. My leadership over history will end that way at my coming. So he's actually prophesying as well as teaching them what they ought to do. It's his final declaration and then that his public ministry is over. And that's very significant and I'm, I'm moved by that. Well, paragraph E, now we move on to John 14. 14. And again, John 14 has the most information of the dynamics involved in walking out uh, the first commandment, loving God with all of our heart. And again, you might read it and not catch it at a quick read, but you break it down and you just verse by phrase by phrase, it is really significant. And I did not understand that uh, some time ago. It's, it's new the Lord is showing me this is where so much insight on how to be empowered to walk out the first commandment. Well, we're jumping in John 14, right in the middle of the chapter. We're starting in verse 14. This, this promise that, I mean, we're so familiar with it, it all, sometimes it might not even move us. But this promise at face value is stunning. Are you kidding? Look what he says in John 14, verse 14. This is the Genesis 1 God in the flesh talking. He goes, blank check. Anything you want. Now, the qualifier, if you read the, whole, the passage, the verses before and after, anything in the will of God that you want, anything, it's got to be in the will of God that you want, I will do it for you if you ask me. But you got to ask me. 
They're not automatically going to come to you. You need to engage with me on it, but I will give it to you. Then the very next verse, verse 14, this is not uh, 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 insignificant. This is very significant. He goes, now that I've told you that if you will talk to me and engage with me, I'll do anything, he hits the very first topic on his heart. He goes, loving me through a spirit of obedience. And then in verse 16, the very next verse, he could have said, I know some of you went, oh, no, I'm not good at that. I'm sending supernatural help if you want it. If you will ask me about anything in the ultimate, verse 15, that you would love me, verse 16, I'll give you supernatural help if you really want this. It is yours to have. I mean, what a remarkable statement. Now, we know it takes the power of God to love God. It takes God's power. He, he has to inspire our heart, give us li living understanding. Our mind needs to be illumined just phrase by phrase, little by little. We need the Holy Spirit's work to do this. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. But Jesus said, ask anything, particularly about loving me, and I'll give you the Spirit if you'll talk to me about it. You'll walk it out little by little, but you'll see that I'm going to take you somewhere where you did not know how far I would take you and where you're going in this. Okay, paragraph F. Now, on the longer notes, this is the top of page two, but we're in the middle of page one on the shorter notes. Okay. When Jesus said, ask anything, he immediately focused them on the grace to love him. It's just a few moments later, maybe an hour or two, we don't know. Jesus actually models it. In John 17, he prays, and he does the anything I want, Father, prayer that you will give to me. He actually modeled. He wasn't only modeling, he meant it. He goes, now, Father, here it is. It's the end before I go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here I am. I'm asking you. Look at John 17, 26. Father, the love with which you love me with, you will impart it to weak human beings. Father, I'm going to give you the ideal, I mean the ultimate request, the highest request. I'm asking you that they would walk in the first commandment. They would love me with the love you love me with. Like, that is so big that with the Father's love, loving Jesus like the Father loves Jesus. And Jesus could have turned around and said, back in chapter 14, this is what I meant. Ask anything. And if you love me, you'll obey me, and I'll help you to do it. If you will talk to me about it, if you'll engage my heart with it, I'll take you further than you know that you might guess where you would go. Paragraph G. Now, this prayer of ask anything, actually, Jesus brought it, because remember, we're on Thursday night in the upper room at the Last Supper, Thursday night. On Tuesday morning, he actually said this on Tuesday morning. He gave them the introductory statement. He goes, in Mark eleven twenty three and 24, and I have this on the extended notes, in Mark eleven twenty three and 24, he goes, anything you ask for, if you believe that you receive it, if you believe that I am listening to you and I'm releasing it to you, then you will walk in it. Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Matter of fact, that's a passage the Lord has used uh, in the last gener you know, four or five decades in a major way globally, Mark 11, 23 and 24, ask anything you want, believe you received it, you will receive it if you, because you believe the Lord is listening to you with pleasure and delight in agreement. And that has been kind of the, the, the main verse and what has been 
commonly called the faith movement. And this faith movement in the last 40, 50, 60 years is spread across the world, all over the globe. And it really is an anointing of the grace of God to lay hold of divine resources, to release God's resources into the earthly realm using faith. And there's been, it's been a great blessing that the Holy Spirit has highlighted this truth, though undoubtedly many people have misused the truth and they've stumbled and done missteps. I don't want to go into all of that. But I do know it was a Holy Spirit move of God to highlight this. In the generation, I believe, right before the generation that he returns, he wanted this truth made known across the body of Christ. And for 40, 50 years, he's really had the wind of his spirit on this truth of ask anything. Believe that you've received it and you will receive it. Believe that I, the Lord, am in agreement and smiling at you and releasing this to you. Well, this very verse was, this very reality was given to Solomon a thousand years before Christ. When Solomon becomes king, when on the, just when he's being coronated as king, he has a dream the night before. And the Lord stands in front of him in a dream. So here's like Jesus standing in front of him saying, now just let me throw in my own, my own terminology. Hey, Solomon, I'm going to give you a passage that I'm not going to speak with my own mouth openly until Mark 11, 23, and 24 in a thousand years. But I'm giving it to you ahead of time. Here's the, here, here it is, uh, Solomon. Ask anything you want. Here it is, blank check. And Solomon said, I want wisdom and knowledge. I want wisdom and knowledge of God, and I want wisdom and knowledge from God to lead his people. That's what I want. Solomon, are you sure? You, have a, you got a blank check. You got this divine encounter. Tell me what you want. I want wisdom and understanding. I want knowledge of you and from you to lead your people. And the Lord says this beautiful thing in verse 11. He goes, good, Solomon. Because we understand the Lord was testing Solomon. And he was going to give him whatever he wanted. He says, but because it was in your heart to make the first request to me, the highest request, to gain wisdom and knowledge of me and of my leadership, so you could bring my people into my blessing. You could have used this opportunity to ask for riches, honor, and long life, but you didn't. So I'm gonna give you the wisdom and the understanding, and I'm gonna give you the riches, honor, and long life. But you asked for this was your highest thing. And I believe in the last 50 plus years, the Lord has anointed this message of ask and believe and you'll receive it, Again, uh, often category—I mean, uh, kind of—is the language of the faith movement, and he was testing the global body of Christ. He said, "Would you ask me for knowledge and wisdom of my heart? Would you ask me for the thing I prayed for that you would have the Father's love for me in your heart, or would you make your number one priority wisdom? I mean, riches, honor, and long life. And I, and though those are biblical things to ask for, I believe many people." They stumbled, and that became their preoccupation of life, and the Lord would have that they asked the other, and they would ask for these things in a secondary way. Paragraph H. Paragraph H. <clears throat> now, the pursuit to walk in the first commandment is, is the key to liberty in our, spiritual, in, our, in our life. 
liberty and fullness in our life. I have written here the greatest pleasures available to the human spirit are spiritual pleasures. There are natural pleasures. There's a number of them, and God is the author of them. Now, we can abuse them, and the, and the enemy can distort them, but even the physical pleasures, many of them, there's a, a hand, you know, you could have about five, six categories of it, that the Lord is the author of those pleasures. They're not sinful in themselves. The enemy uh, comes in and perverts them and twists them. But the greatest pleasures are actually spiritual. It's when God reveals God to the human spirit. When God the Holy Spirit, just little installments of insight about the beauty of the Father and the Son, just a little bit of this, just over the years, a little bit as we go, a little bit of this goes a long way. It empowers us to love him. And so Jesus, he's calling us to, to walk in love that is manifest by obedience. Look at paragraph I. I want you to note this. This is a really important point in John chapter 14. The call to love God is the point most emphasized in these five chapters. The calling to love God linked with a call to obey him is the most emphasized truth in the greatest teaching in human history. Don't lose the significance of that. The greatest teaching of the greatest teacher, what did he emphasize most? Here you have it, right here. But the body of Christ has lost sight of this, but I believe the Holy Spirit is gonna plumb line the end type church with living understanding and an anointing. That Song of Solomon 8, 6, the fire of love on the human heart is gonna empower I mean, a billion believers to walk in this. Now, I want to be a part of that company walking in it as, as much I say, Lord, I want everything you will give the human spirit. However much you will give, I want it. I want to know how far you'll let me go. I don't want to, like, squeak in, you know, at the very end, you know, barely, you know, I strained out the grace of God to the max, but got in, saved as though by fire. I'm not interested in that. I want, and many of you have the same spirit. We want to go... We want the fullness, all that God will give the human spirit in this age. And in the generation he's returning, he's giving more at that time frame than any other time frame. What a glorious time to be alive, though there'll be greater pressures, there'll be a greater anointing in that generation upon the end time church. But look at this, verse 15. Five times he says it in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, I'll just uh, summarize it. You'll obey me, verse 21. If you love me, you'll obey me, verse 23. If you love me, you'll obey me, verse 24. If you don't obey me, you don't love me, verse 31. I love the Father, I obey him. I mean, it's this rapid fire. I mean, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. It's just like, is there anything more clear in the greatest teaching that he gave the greatest emphasis, five statements in a row, boom, 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 boom. He goes, this is the way to liberty. And Jesus connected obeying him with loving him. Paragraph J, he defined loving God as being deeply rooted in a spirit of obedience. Now God calls us to love him on his terms. We don't get to shift the definition of what loving God looks like. We must love God on his terms. He is the most qualified man in history to, to define love. And there are many different definitions of love that are emerging in the culture. 
and many of them have found their way in the mouths of believers and in pulpits, the secular definitions of love that are contrary, that minimize Jesus' definition of loving God. And we cannot do that. We cannot use the sentimental definitions of love in the culture that minimize obedience to him because Jesus isn't going, sorry guys, the bad news about the good news is you have to deny yourself. Sorry, I, I just, I had to get that in there. No, he's not apologizing. That's not the bad news. He's saying this is where the liberty of the human spirit is. This is where your greatness will be found. This is where satisfaction in your life in the spirit will come to the highest place. He's not apologizing at all. And we don't want to dumb down the message and we think, well, we're being nice to people. We don't want to put a heavy thing on them. You know what we're doing? They, we, are, we are leading them in a way that they're stuck in spiritual boredom and spiritual darkness and they're just stuck in compromise and dullness. I don't want you stuck in spiritual boredom. I want you to go as far as God will let you go in your obedience. You want to go all the way, not, oh, Lord, how can, do I have to do that? The Lord says, wrong question. Uh, you were created for love. This is the way forward. This is where your greatness and where your liberty is. Now, I don't have this on the, on the two-page notes, but I do the four-page notes, this next paragraph. That serving Jesus, this is an important point though, serving Jesus and denying our lust, those are two sides of one coin, this is the theater of which God has chosen for us to express our love to him. He created this. He goes, I want you to deny your flesh. I want you to serve me even if you don't have a big impact. And even if there's in your flesh, you don't like it. I want you to do that. And I have chosen that as the theater of which you will show your love to me. Now, when we think of lust, some people think of only immorality, but the biblical uh, uh, kind of boundary lines of lust is far more than immorality. That's the one most people think about, but it includes covetousness, lust about money, anger, lust to have your own way in your own time and things work out just like you want it, bitterness, that people treat you like you demand they treat you. Anger, retaliation, slander. There's 20 things on the list. My point is, it's bigger than immorality. When I hold my tongue and do not slander, and I don't go fight for my rights and put somebody else down, and I hold myself back, I say, because I love you, I'm doing this. And the Lord says, I take this personally. I take this very personally. I see love in that restraint. But he wants us to see love in that restraint. That's not an accident. Now, every single believer, every one of us have a different assignment. We have a different personality in a different life situation. And me, even people in the same family, in the same home, some similar situations, but still it's unique to every individual with their personality. And this is the assignment God has given you to offer your gift of love to him. I mean, it's, I mean, there's so many ways. There's trouble here, here, and here. He says, for you, love me in that assignment, and I will take it as your gift of love back to me. And that's a glorious reality. And I always like to say this, too, and I have this again on the extended notes, that weak love is still genuine love. Our love isn't only real when it's mature. Our love is real when it begins, and even weak love, I go, Lord, I love you. I, I don't want to complain. I don't want to have retaliation. I don't want bitterness. It's emerging, but I'm resisting it because I love you. And he goes, I see it. 
It's real love. I take it personally. Yes, keep going. Yes, this is good. This is good. I have here in paragraph K on the, on the short notes and M on the longer notes <laughs> that affection-based obedience is the most reliable kind of obedience there is. And what I mean by affection-based obedience, it's obedience that is rooted in the conversation of, God, you love me, and I'm seeking to love you. You love me, I'm seeking to love you. That's, I call that affection-based obedience. That it, it's in that conversation with the Lord. Even though we might not be deep in it, that's, that's how we're working the muscle of our heart. The other types of obedience that are actually in the Bible, it's in the Bible, I call it duty-based obedience. Or it can be fear-based obedience. And that, they're actually biblical. Duty-based obedience, you have to do this and this and this to be qualified for the next measure of what I'm going to release you into. Okay, Lord, I want to do it so I get qualified. Duty's good. It's not the highest. It's not the deepest. It's not the most reliable. Because sometimes under the duty-based, they go, ah, I don't care if I get that next thing. I just coast for a while. Fear-based is pretty powerful. If you get caught, you get in big trouble. And that's actually biblical. Jesus actually presented that. It's just not the highest form. The obedience that comes out of the conversation of being loved and seeking to love back, that's where there's a, a deeper, a greater energy. It's more sustainable. I, lo I love the, uh, the cry of uh, the king to the bride in Song of Solomon. Now, we, need, we know Song of Solomon is King Solomon. He's speaking to his bride, to the maiden who becomes his bride. But we know spiritually it's King Jesus speaking to his bride, the body of Christ. And he, he describes her. He looks at her as a bride with a heart of loyal love. And he says this, and I just say it to you because this might be a new passage. He looks at her, he goes, your heart is like a locked garden. There's all of these defiling influences that could come into your garden. You lock it, and you don't let the streams be polluted by animals coming or all kinds of different things. It's locked only for me. And the Lord is raising up an end-time bride that she carries her heart as a locked garden. She's not asking, what do I have to do? She's crying, Lord, how far will you let me go? And then the she responds in the next chapter, chapter 5. She tells the, the ladies around her, she goes, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm lovesick. I'm sick with love. My heart is a locked garden. And I, I love this quote by uh, Yo Herman. We must be lovesick to be love safe. He said that some time ago. I go, man, that's good. I, I'm taking that one. You have to be lovesick to be love safe. Someone goes, who's Yo Herman? He's a very... Famous theologian at IHOPU. But anyway, Roman numeral two, he's one of our beloved uh, leaders here. Roman numeral two. I'm on the top of page two on the short notes and top of page three on the long notes. Roman numeral two. It's believers are called to enjoy God's manifest presence. So what, what happens here in verse 21 is that, remember, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you got to obey me. Verse 21, he says, if you love me, you got to obey me. He says it again, then adds two more promises. Then in verse 23, he goes, I'm going to say it again, love me, obey me. Then he adds two more promises. So every couple of verses, he makes the same declaration, and then, then elaborates on it a little bit more. And these promises are critical to engage in, because as we engage 
And the two promises in verse 21 and the two promises in verse 23, these four added promises in our quest to love him with obedience, these four promises will empower our hearts if we say, thank you, Lord, show me more, help me walk in these four promises. They're very motivating and equipping and empowering. Now, again, we're not gonna go through them right now. That's why we're spending, you know, 100 Fridays over the next year, two or three, whatever, on this line by line by line. But I just wanted to note that there's two promises in verse 21 and two more in verse 23. Well, let's read verse 21. He's repeating verse 15. If you have my commandment and keep it, it is he who loves me. But then he goes on to the two promises. This is remarkable. This is more than it, it seems at a quick read. He goes, and if you love me, this is if, my father will love you. Wait, I thought he loved me. I thought he loved me at first. He goes, and not only will my father love you, I will manifest. God, the Holy Spirit will manifest God on your life. You will feel God. You will talk to God. He'll talk to you. He goes, there's nothing greater than these two things. My Father will love you, and I will manifest. I will communicate with you in a way you'll feel it. I don't mean living in spiritual ecstasy every minute of every day, but there, there will be a living communication between us, and you'll feel the power of it here and there more consistently as time goes on. That's pretty big. Those are two big, really big promises. Verse 23 has two big promises, but we're, gonna, we're not going to do those today. Look at paragraph B. Let's just isolate this phrase. It is he who loves me. Or the ESV says, he it is who loves me. You can say it either way. Could you imagine? You're standing before the Lord on the last day. And all the company, they stand before the Lord, and the Lord is evaluating your life. And there's a company of angels and before the Father, and he points at you and says, he it is, he loves me. This one loved me on the earth. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to you, not in a kind of a, well, kind of in a secondary way, kind of on the run, I tried to love you a little bit, and he goes, no, this one made it his life ambition to love me. And even if it's the later years of life, he set his course to love me. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to you and the company on the last day when we stand before his throne? Can't imagine anything more dynamic than that. Paragraph C. Now, this is a very specific promise that means more than you might catch at a quick read. He says that if you love me this way, this is beyond just the introduction to the grace of God in salvation. He goes, my father will love you. It has a very, very specific meaning. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it three times in John 13 to 17, two times right here, and then the next time in John 16, verse 27 on, on the extended notes. He goes, if you love me, you'll be loved by my Father. If you love me, you'll be loved by my Father. Because, in John 16, because you love me, you'll be loved by my Father. Because? That's pretty intense. Now, this language of the Father loving us, let's, let's look at this a little bit more in detail. Paragraph D. The idea of the Father loving us, quote, because we love God. It confuses us. If, if we don't understand the context, 
of, of what he's saying and the larger, uh, how this truth is presented with more terminology than this, various terminologies throughout the scripture. Because it appears to contradict the truth that we all know that we only love God because he loves us first. Meaning God so loved the world. And the world doesn't care about God, but God loves the world. And God only loves in fullness. He can't love in part. He'd deny himself. He loved in part. He loves the unbeliever. He loves the new believer, regardless how they respond. He so loves the world, and he proved it by sending his son. So we know it's clear in the Bible we love God because he loved us. Our love for God springs out of the revelation of his love for us. There's no question that's Bible 101, grace of God 101. The paragraph E, Jesus is speaking two different expressions of the love of God. He's not saying the same thing. He's saying two different things, two distinct things. They don't contradict each other, but he's saying two different ones. Number one, the one we're all familiar with, God so loves the world. He loves in fullness, never less than fullness. Before any of us were saved, before any of us even thought of obeying him, he loved us. That's clear. And as we understand that, it awakens love in our heart back for him. But it's number two. This is the new idea to uh, many people. You just don't, I rarely ever hear this idea mentioned. Matter of fact, it's only on the lips of Jesus three times and only in his final teaching in John 13 to 17. Only by Jesus, and he says it three times on his last night. Now, this idea is communicated in other language, in other ways. What Jesus is talking about, and he's not talking about God's redemptive love for every human being no matter what because they're human and because he's full of love. That's number one. Number two, you can use the word if you want to catch the sense of it. It's not the Greek word, but it's the sense of it. He enjoys his relationship, and he enjoys the life choices of that person. He looks at their life choices and goes, yes, yes, look at that. He's using love in that different sense than he used it in John 3.16. He esteems the life choices. He enjoys and esteems the fruit of that person's life. He enjoys his relationship with them. He delights in partnering together with them because they so value his love, they embrace his values and his leadership. They so esteem his love for them, they embrace any value they understand that's from his heart. That's a remarkable reality. Paul said this same concept. He used it with different language. He said, it's my ambition. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I have in the notes here. He goes, I want to be well-pleasing. Not saved as though by fire and suffering loss. Not that. I want to be well-pleasing. I want the Lord to look at my choices and go, yes, yes, that's, that's uh, glorious. Or John the Apostle said, I'm the disciple whom the Lord loved. He meant he enjoyed his interaction with me in a special way. He didn't mean he loves me and sorry for the rest of you guys. He didn't really get around to you. He's saying he enjoys his interaction with me because our values, I've so embraced his values, the best I know in the grace of God. The angel said this to Daniel. In the book of Daniel, three times, he goes, God calls you beloved. He was 84 years old. He goes, you're, you're beloved. God delights in entrusting more to you. Now, the 
The analogy in a, in a human family, a good father loves, deeply loves his child that is resistant, even rebellious. He goes, oh man, I, I need to exercise patience and I feel grief and the tension and the conflict. You're constantly pushing back, but I, I, don't, I don't love you less. I don't love you less, but I do feel grief and I have to relate to you always through the grid of patience, but I'm, I'm happy to do that. It says in Micah 7, 18, he delights to show mercy. He delights in it. He goes, I do. But then you look at the other child, they are embracing everything their father values. They want to work closely with their father. They love conversation. They have the same values. They're going in the same direction. He says, you know, I don't love you more, but I delight. The relationship is fun. It's, it's just enriching, just our conversation and laboring together. And that, that same reality is true in the kingdom of heaven. That same reality. Now, Jesus said it another way. He goes, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Now, that's, uh, I've said this before, that that well done, good and faithful servant is probably the most used passage for uh, people to tell lies about people at funerals. I hear, I've heard it for 50 years. And the Lord says, well done. I go, well, I don't think so. As though well done is what every believer hears. That, no, no, that's a, that, that is not the majority. The Lord says, I love you, come, but well done, your life choices, I consider them great. I love the things you've chosen, the way you've spent your time, the way you've talked about people behind their back. I love the way you talk. It touches my heart. He doesn't say well done. He doesn't say I'm well pleased with every single believer. That's as far as a small number percent. We don't know. We just know we're all aiming for it. That's what we know. Paragraph F. Now this is a very important passage. Uh, Jesus tells the uh, church at, at Sardis, he, he, he uh, lets us know how he uses the, the word name because this is important. He says, in chapter 3, verse 1 of Revelation, he goes, I know your works. You have a name, a reputation, a testimony. You have a testimony about you, but in the lips of others, that you're alive, but actually you're spiritually dead. Now, they're still born again, but they're not vibrant in their spirit is what he means. And he goes, he doesn't mean I know your name, Sardis. You know, uh, that's not the name, the name of the city. He goes, I know your testimony. I know your reputation. Then he says a couple of verses later, he goes, but if you will overcome, this is just indescribably glorious. If you'll overcome, he goes, I will confess your name. I will tell your testimony. And he just won't say, Bill and Tom, you know, they're saved, check next. Liz, Susie, check next. He's not just rapid fire naming a name. When the, the Bible uses the concept of a name that God names someone, God calls them by name. He's talking about the nature of how they live, their destiny in God, their testimony. It's far bigger than just the first and last name. Can you imagine? Jesus said to Sardis, he goes, if you will overcome this spiritual lethargy, he goes, I know you got a reputation and a testimony, you're on fire, but you're not. But I'm not giving up on you. If you'll overcome, I will tell your new testimony to my Father and the angels. Now, this is a most remarkable reality because, I mean, this is a promise bigger than we could imagine. This is not a rapid-fire 
who's saved and who's not saved list. This is a very dynamic, emotional moment in the life of that believer. They've overcome having a, uh, uh, an exaggerated testimony, and Jesus is going to tell their renewed testimony before the Father and the angels. Now, the Father already knows. The Father knows everything Jesus knows. So Jesus isn't telling the Father, so the Father goes, oh, I was wondering how that guy was getting along. Good to know. That's not what's happening. <laughs> is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to go into the royal court setting majesty on high, innumerable angels, multitudes of saints, the 24 elders, and in the presence of the majesty, I'm going to tell your testimony. And I don't mean a 50-year story. I'm going to love bomb you for a few moments in front of my father. I'm going to say, you see this lady? What she struggled through, what her home life was like, what her economics and, the, and, the, and what she struggled with physically, and how little resource she had, and she kept coming back to love me, Father. I want you to know. He goes, I know. But Jesus says, I want everyone to know how important this is to me that I'm going to say it in front of you and the angels of the royal court. I mean, it's one thing. We have this a lot at IHOP that we have team meetings and five or ten people and we'll take a time and we'll love bomb one person. We'll take five or ten minutes and say some sentences about them. It's beautiful and private. Jesus said, you know, you'll probably do that. But I'm going to do it in front of the king's court, in front of everybody, because I want everyone to know how important the way that lady loved me is to my heart. I can't think of anything more significant than this. Let's look at Roman numeral three, which is at the bottom of page two or, or the middle of page four, if you're on the longer notes. And some of you have them, and they're on the Internet. We're going to bring this to an end in just the next couple moments here. Now Jesus is ending this, John chapter 14. He goes, if you love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. And he's giving them a new paradigm of death. I don't want to take time on that. That's a glorious point. Because the end time church is going to need Jesus' paradigm of death in order not to be offended at what takes place on the earth. But that's for another day. Verse 30. He's in the upper room. He goes, he prophesies. He goes, I want you to know the ruler of the world is coming right now. The ruler of the world is Satan, and he's coming in the person of Judas, who's already, Jesus told Judas, what thou doest, do, do thou quickly. Go now. Judas went to the Roman guard to bring them back to arrest Jesus. None of the people in the room get what's happening. Jesus goes, he's coming real quick. But I don't want you to be confused, because this guard is going to get me. And they're going to beat me, and they're going to kill me tomorrow. But Satan has no victory in me at all. This is my choice. I could call legions of angels and stop them. Satan has no advantage over me. I'm going to that cross tomorrow, not because Satan got one over on me, because I came to the earth to go to that cross to obey my Father, to show my love to the Father, and to purchase my bride. I'm going there willingly. Satan gains nothing in me. That's what he's saying. He goes in verse 31. Matter of fact, he goes, matter of fact, though it will look like for a season, I failed. It will look like for a season, Satan won. It will look like for a season, what I told you didn't work. But I promise you, I will be fully vindicated. 
I assure you I will be fully vindicated in God's time. And he means ultimately when he returns in the millennial kingdom, but I mean through history by believers seeing it, he goes, everyone, the whole world, not just the believers, every demon in hell, every unbeliever that's lost, every believer in the resurrection, everyone for the rest of the billion years of history will know I didn't lose by going to the cross. I express my love for my father. I'm going to stamp history with, I loved my father. That's what the cross is going to declare. There was no defeat at all. I will gain everything back the father promised me. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Jesus' love uh, for the father going to the cross it's the most costly display of, human, of love for the Father by a human being in history. But a billion years from now, it will still be the marquee statement of love stamped on human history. Jesus loved the Father. And Jesus is saying this to them. He's in essence, he's in essence saying to them, I want you to do what I'm doing. I'm not go to the cross and die for people. That's not the point. I'm going to the cross in obedience to my Father because I'm expressing my love. And your love will be costly at times, but I wanna, I wanna inspire you, this is good, because the fullness of indication that it was all about love, it may not come in your timing and your way, but it will come when I confess your name before the Father, it will be there. And he says, uh, you know, uh, here in the last passage I have, in John, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus knows the end of the story. Now, this is Paul writing, but Paul goes, let me take you to the end. And he takes them past the second coming to the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And it says in verse 24, now, Jesus knew all this, of course. Jesus knows the end of the story. Paul said, then the end will come, the end of the millennial kingdom. He goes, when Jesus delivers up the kingdom to the Father because for a thousand years, Jesus will be on the earth in a physical resurrected body and the saints will be in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem will come down to the earth and there'll, be, uh, there'll still be saint, uh, people with uh, natural bodies in the, in the millennial kingdom. And that thousand year period, every city, every institution, every economic, educational institution will come under Jesus' leadership. Every sphere of society and every society of the earth, every city of the earth, will be in obedience to Jesus and honoring. He will be the king. He'll have all glory, honor, riches, honor of the whole earth will be under his authority and under his inspiration. He goes, when the whole kingdom of the earth is delivered to me, he goes, I'm going to deliver it to my father. Ah, you think I love him by the cross? You see he's going to give me, every knee will bow, every, I'll be, every king will come to me. I'm going to give that back to the Father. It's all about the Father to me. He says that when all things, verse 28, are made subject to Jesus during that thousand years and at the end, then the Son will subject himself to the Father. He'll bow down and say, Father, all that I earned in my obedience, all the kingdoms of the world, here it is. It's to you, Father. I did this thing because of my love for you. I will cast my crowns before you forever, and you're worthy. You're worthy of who I am. That's the statement that he's leaving them with in this uh, declaration here in John chapter 14. Well, amen and amen. Let's just stand before the Father.
I want to love God. Like even, I mean, Jesus had to wait 2,000 years to be vindicated before the nations. The nations still think it's, it, it's not right. I mean, there's a billion of us, but there's far more that think he's false. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and he will offer that act back to the Father, and every demon in hell will know he did it because he loved the Father. He goes, that's what I'm about. I'm about love. That's, that's what this whole thing's about. So, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask you, you would stamp our heart with a certainty that our costly love that might not be seen by anybody, you will vindicate it on the last day. You will actually say our name before the Father and tell our story. I'm talking about that, again, that lady, there's a million of them. The most difficult situation in life, economic pressures, physical pressures, children pressures, husband pressures, family pressures, everything pressures. She's living the Sermon on the Mount. She's reining her heart in. I love you. I love you. And Jesus says, oh, it will be openly displayed one day. I myself will do it like the Father's going to do it for me. Beloved, it is worth it. It is worth it. So let's just talk to the Lord for a moment. Have Britain just lead us for a minute. Let's say, Lord, I sign back up. It's not too late to sign up again. I want this to be my main prayer request. Father, that the love with which you love Jesus, it'd be in my heart. Father, I want to be faithful. I'm going to show my love, even though it's not vindicated. Maybe for many years later. Father, I ask that you would mark our heart with a seal of love from Song of Solomon 8.6. Seal of love to mark this community. It's worth it, Jesus. Thank you that you've inspired us. You've modeled love for the Father and that higher expression of the Father's love. spirit of the human heart right now. Instead of calling people up, I mean all of us need to be leaning into this. Lord, here I am. 
Father, I ask for this whole room to be a ministry time. I want to live before your eyes, Abba. It matters to you that I'm choosing obedience under pressure. Solomon 8 6. Release the fiery seal of love on the heart. Today, Lord, more and more the seal. I want to be a locked garden, my heart to be a locked garden. I want to be well pleasing to you, Father. I want you to love me in that secondary way. Love me, the choices I'm making. That's what I want, Lord. Jesus said that you would love my choices, my life. Lord, I want to walk in this. I want to walk in this, Abba. Lord, I want to keep your word. Now, some are stuck in some difficult, sinful patterns and mindsets and emotions. Don't give up. Don't give up. Ask him. And he'll give you the power to love by the Spirit. Ask him. He said, ask anything. Make this number one. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't draw back. Your assignment might be hard, but you're showing love to him. No one else sees it, but he sees it. testimony before the Father one day. I'm going to be a locked guard in my heart, Lord. I don't want the defilement entering 
country. No bitterness, no slandering, no payback, no manipulation, no covetousness. All the way. I'm going to be diligent to the end, Lord. Faithful. I wanna be found steady. I wanna be found faithful until the end. I wanna be found faithful. I wanna be found steady. I wanna be found faithful till the end. All for your glory. Father, be glorified. Give us doves looking unto Jesus. Let us walk.